0: I never see my preacher's eyes. He hides their light divine. For when he prays, he shuts his own, and when he preaches, mine. It's been well said, I think, that if all the people who sleep during sermons in churches were laid end to end, they would be a lot more comfortable. One man was preaching, and he was going on quite a long time, and was rather boring. And then he suddenly said to his congregation, I'm going to stop now because Jesus has told me to stop. And he sat down and the worship leader stood up and said, let's sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. (laughs) Could you imagine the exact opposite of that? For example, I stand up here and most of you will have no idea who I am, but you assume that I've been invited and indeed I have. So I stand here as a speaker and I open my mouth and instantly there is an electric atmosphere. You are completely captivated by what I say in my dreams. And I go on quite a long time, but it doesn't make any difference to you. And then at the end, you come up to me and you say, where will you be speaking next week? And I tell you about four or five miles away, which is the case. And you say, I'm going to be there and you turn up. And as I'm making my way to my car, you are following me and you are asking more and more questions. Now, that is exactly the situation that happened for the mission team here in Acts 13 that has just been read. What had happened sometime before this, on the day of Pentecost, 120 disciples had been together, and the Spirit of God had come upon them. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were 120 million people. So 120 disciples, that's one for a million. Do you know the length of the Acts of the Apostles is between 30 to 35 years? Perhaps, as I think, 33 years, the lifespan of Jesus, because the Acts is just volume two or the two-part work that Dr. Luke put together. In volume one, he was telling us what Jesus began to do. Now he's telling us what Jesus is continuing to do. It's the same Jesus, he's the head, just a church going out to do greater works than even he could do because there's more of us. And I can be in one place and you can be somewhere else as a witness for him and we can do greater works because there's more of us as the body of Christ of which he is the head today. And that was happening and it started there in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And now we're into a transition here in Acts 13 when they're moving in to the Gentile world. And remember, we're all witnesses to the Lord. Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me. He didn't say hands up how many people would like to be a witness. It's not an option. For me, as a follower, I am a witness, one way or the other. Just like if you're married, you're a witness to marriage, good, bad, or indifferent. But we're a witness to it, just so for Christ and for his cause and for the gospel. And don't we want to be more effective in our witness? Don't we want to make a difference wherever we are? We can learn from this mission team, how that can be the case for people like you and me. There were three factors that were involved. First of all, they were guided by God, led by the Spirit, as verse 48 will tell us, to those people making connections, getting in touch with those people who were appointed for eternal or everlasting life. So they went in the right way, with the right message, at the right time and making the right connections where God could be at work. Don't we want that for ourselves, in our witness? Well, we can learn something of how that can happen from this incident. But we do go out, always, every one of us, into a world confused about religious matters. There are a plethora of opinions and views, even some using the name of Jesus, but with a different content. Some with blended ideas of what religion is all about. And we need to be able to discern that which is happening where we are going, and cut right through it and communicate that which is life and peace, that which is authentic, not another gospel. And again, we can see here how they did it, and we can glean and learn from that. But we'll only achieve things if we use words. I mean, people sometimes will say to me, well, I will let my life do the talking. Well, even Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Even his life alone was not enough. It was necessary to use words. And in that right situation, communicating to the right people, we need to be able to say the right things so that they get the facts and they can feed upon the facts so that their doubts will die of starvation. But that can only happen as we communicate that truth. And when the Bible talks about preaching in the Acts of the Apostles, it's usually gossiping the gospel. It's one on one, not something that happens from a pulpit like this. And we can learn how that can happen, what content can make the difference. Take the first, guided by God. And I find particularly young people, but not necessarily among the young, they get confused about this. How can I recognize whether God is leading me, whether God is in something or not? I mean, do I get turned as a follower of Christ into some kind of robot? So I put out my left foot and then the Lord says, put out my right one and I make my way forward. What shirt I should wear? What shoes I should put on. Some people do kind of think that if God's going to lead us, that's how it's going to be. Or if they don't think like that, they think God's leading has got to be in some dramatic way. A bit like a young farmer who was convinced that he should be a preacher. Trouble was, no one else was. But the reason why he was convinced was because when he was at a field... He looked up and he saw a cloud formation spelling out two letters, P, C. And he was sure that meant preach Christ. A good friend kindly said to him, maybe it means plant corn. How do we know? Well, here we see how. The Holy Spirit guides Barnabas and Paul. The location is the church at Antioch. Now that's not the Antioch earlier on in Acts where they were first called Christians. There were many Antiochs because of uh, a dictator called Antiochus Epiphany. And these towns and cities had been named after him, a little bit like here in Christchurch. There are five Christchurchs in the United Kingdom. You're located in the earliest of them all. But until the Priory, this was called Twynham. You knew that, I guess. But that was what was happening back then. And there were prophets and teachers They didn't have the New Testament. Here were people to inform, communicate, lead and guide them based upon the insights of the Old Testament. Barnabas was among them, a real encourager in this church. You need people like him. Simeon called Niger, probably from Nigeria. And here you get evidence, probably, of racial discrimination. But not in the church. Because you see, way back at the crucifixion, They wanted to make sure, did the Roman soldiers, that Jesus wouldn't die too early. So they looked out for somebody and his skin let him down and they forced this man to carry the cross for Jesus. He obviously took an interest in all of this and here he is in the church. And then you've got Lucius who is from Cyprus. Menean was a foster brother to the Herods. So do you see the mixture? You've got royal people within this early church, as well as ordinary people. Now, it was about 10 years after the Damascus Road experience of Paul. Up to this time, he has been called Saul, and he is a Bible teacher. But now, he will be called Paul the Apostle. To formulate and communicate the gospel and send that out. And it won't be Barnabas and Saul from now onwards. It will be Paul the Apostle. And Barnabas and then Paul and Silas. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. They were given a deep conviction as they worked and witnessed for the Lord and as they worshipped together, this is the direction for you to go. You see, God speaks to people already doing what they should be doing. It's easy for him to move them into other circles when you're already doing what he wants you to be about. Nowhere in the Bible... Do you read that we are to seek guidance? Nowhere. We are told to seek God. And then guidance will find us because we're acknowledging him in all of our ways. He will direct our steps. You see, we are the sheep and he is the shepherd. And it is his responsibility to guide and to lead us. We're not a tightrope walker. One slip and we're finished. In fact, he has put enough fuel into our spiritual tank to get us where we're meant to go. And if we take a detour, he's got a way of weaving even that detour into his master plan. Indeed, a little bit later on, that will happen to Paul. Because he says to his mission team, I think that the Spirit of God is saying we should move in this direction. This is Acts 16. And the Spirit says, no, I'm not telling you that. So they can go. And then the Spirit, he thought, was saying, you are going to go in this direction. They actually started, it's a different Greek word, they started on the journey and then they were stopped. Somehow the other spirit said no. So what happened? The gospel came to Christchurch because they had a Macedonian call. And it was the beginning of the gospel coming into Europe and to people like you and me because a man was led with his team by the Spirit. Well, they placed hands upon him. That wasn't because there was something magical about the hands, nothing like abracadabra. This was ratifying what God was already saying. And they went to Cyprus. Barnabas was from Cyprus, so with no other instructions, that seemed the most natural place for them to go. That's how to be led by the Spirit. There is that inner conviction, this is the direction we should go as you're working, witnessing, and worshipping with others. And the others will dignify that and will say, yes, that's what should happen. And then what is the logical thing? Well, you go to the most logical place. And when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. Again, a natural place for them to start. They were Jewish. So there was a natural link through and connection with those that were Jewish. John Mark was also with them. He was the cousin to Barnabas and he was their helper. So effective witness starts by being guided by God to the right people in the right way at the right time. I like to sometimes think of it like this. Have you ever been on a country road and you're stuck behind a country bus and there is nothing you can do about it? So you just have to sit there and wait. And even when it comes to a bus stop, you know it's too dangerous for you to get round. So you again just have to wait. And you see somebody getting on And then it sets out again, does that bus keep into its route? Now if you've got eyes to see, you know that at the next bus stop there isn't anybody waiting, but there is somebody in their home nearby looking at their watch and thinking, I need to catch that bus. And they're there and ready when the bus turns up. And what is the bus doing all of this time? Worrying. Really? I do hope they catch me. I do hope that I get them to their destination and they don't miss out. No, it's just keeping to its root. And it picks up on some people, takes them so far, picks up on others and takes them even further, might even take somebody completely to their destination. And you know what I am? I'm an old country bus. And these days a really old country bus. And I just have responsibilities in this coming week. And I will meet with people and then we'll pass on. And other people will come into my life and I into them and we'll take them so much further. And that's all that we are. I don't have to be coercive or manipulative in any of these situations as a witness. I just pick up on it. As it happens so that Jesus can do through me in that situation all that he chooses to do. And I'm never so free. As when I'm relaxing into all of that, am I witness for his cause? Well, the only way in which that is going to be effective is if you guard against falsehood. Because as we've said, there are so many mixed up ideas out there about religion. And we will meet people like that. And we need to cut through all of that. And that's what happens to this team. Much must have happened as they travel from place to place. But Luke singles out what happened in Paphos and Sergius Paulus, who was a Roman governor, a proconsul, a very intelligent man. And like a lot of intelligent politicians today, as well as royal people, they have their gurus, their mystics, their therapists. Plenty of them. You may be surprised how many world leaders have people like that. Chaplains as well. And here this man had Elimas. And he was a Jewish occultist who had a blend of religious ideas. Again, you'll see that during the week. Different ideas. even Jesus incorporated some of the opinions and teachings of Jesus into the things that he was saying. Many have followed him. There are Christian cults you will know of today that started as authentic. But something happened and they added to Christ. And they ended up with another gospel that is no good news whatsoever. If I'm honest with you, and I need to be, some Christian events concern me today. Because there is the subtle temptation within many of them to become me-centred rather than God-centred. For example, way back at the seminars for these conventions and conferences, they majored on discipleship, but now it's fulfillment. They spoke about handling trials, now it's finding comfort. They majored on holiness. Now it's the secret of happiness. Once it was our responsibility as a disciple, but now it's our privileges. The major message was repentance. Now it's belief and often easy believism. It majored upon the word being opened up, but now it's worship. And worship should surely always be in the context of the word. We worship and must do so, our New Testament says, in spirit and what? In truth. We now speak about the Saviour, but maybe not so much about him as Lord. But we only know him as a Saviour. Through knowing him as a Lord. In the Acts of the Apostles, in all the preaching, you will find the word Saviour comes 24 times. But the word Lord, 644 times. It is the result of knowing him as Lord. We know him and receive him as a Saviour. Quite literally, he is the Commander-in-Chief. And you know what it means if you've had any military connections. What it is to be a Commander-in-Chief. It means that they take the clothes away and give you their own clothes. They tell you when you can get up in the morning and when you can go to bed at night. They tell you all sorts of things that you have to do because that's your commander in chief and only Christianity that declares that is genuine and authentic, that we might confess with our lips what we believed in our hearts. And Paul is not tactful about this at all. And I can understand that, and I'm sure that you can as well. A little while ago, I was in India, and on my first time <laughs> coming from this under-five-star, by-lot five hotel I was staying in, to go for breakfast, suddenly the American missionary who had organized the conference yelled out top of his voice do not drink the water on the tables and they made sure that bottled water which had been uncapped came because that would have really ruined us really and you need to know that and say that which is exactly what happens right here You're not of God, you're of the devil. You're an enemy of that which is God. You're full of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? And Saul does to this man the miracle that first happened to him that he might really see. He made him temporally blind. That was the first miracle of Paul the Apostle. That this man might really see. But it was not the miracle that convinced the proconsul. It was the teaching that made the difference to the man. And legend has it, well authenticated, it didn't just lead him to the Lord. It led his family and his staff to Christ as well. And from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. He came from a wealthy background. This was uncomfortable living. And he wanted to go home to mummy, who was a widow at this time, we believe. It created a rift because there was family involved. There were problems between Paul and Barnabas now. Thankfully, given a little bit of time, They sorted that out between them. From Perga, they went on to Piscesia, Antioch. Why climb a mountain? Because that's what they're doing now. It would appear that he got malaria and had become very, very ill. And he needed to get in to a better atmosphere He wanted to be sickness-free. But the gospel was going to new places because he was ill. Sometimes God will use illness. A young woman spent more than a year in a hospital institution with multiple operations. Mobility was non-existent for that year. And she would have people coming up probably with nothing else to do, and chatting to her about her faith in Christ. She said, I was in no fit condition to do it, but I did my best and I realized I was a missionary, reaching into that hospital in ways in which others couldn't. And that's what was going on here. But it only went on effectively Not just because they were led by the Spirit, not because they could cut through and discern that which was wrong about religious ideas around about them. But they communicated that which would give life to people. On the Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and sat down. There was gospel content conversations in what they said. Why were they asked to speak? Well... You see, he had a pharisaical background, did Paul? So he was wearing the equivalent of a clerical collar. And the custom in those days was for the synagogue leaders to go up to such a person and say, would you like to give a word? And Paul definitely would like to give a word in that situation. And he stunned them with what they said. Didn't always like it. And some were going to reject it. But it definitely wasn't, now I sit me down to sleep, the sermon long, the subject deep. If he should quit before I wake, I ask someone, give me a shake. It definitely wasn't that. God chose us as a people. He got us out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into Canaan. He gave us judges. He gave us a great prophet in Samuel He gave us King Saul because we wanted a king. He gave us a better king in David. But from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he has promised. And then he told him about John who made it quite clear. I am not the Christ or the Messiah, but I'm preparing the way for him. I'm not worthy to unstrap his shoes, but he's going to be coming and he has come. And that was just the introduction of Paul, I have worked out about 10 points he was making by way of introduction. If he took two or three minutes on each one, can you imagine how long this sermon is going on for? Not mine by the way, but his is going on for right here, a long, long time. And then he got into the ministry of Jesus and then the crunch point, the crucifixion but not stopping there, the psalm is predicted: "You will not let your holy one see decay." King David did decay in a grave, but Jesus, who went into a grave, did not. And now he focuses upon Christ and all that he has achieved. And Paul drives home the point by emphasizing what is the essence of the gospel: forgiveness of sins, and everyone who believes is justified. Words matter, don't they? These words matter. But when an American businessman got a message way back when communication was not as instant as it is now and his wife was on a ship on her way back from a European tour and she'd been in the shop and she wired back to him, I've seen this bracelet, it's wonderful. It's only $75,000. May I buy it? And he wired back, no, comma, price too high. The radio operator left the comma out, so it read, no price too high. So she bought it. Words matter, and believe me, there are some key phrases right here the forgiveness of sins i never ask anybody are you a sinner it's a redundant question we all are but that's a bit direct for an englishman to say isn't it so i would normally say are you perfect and when they say no i'm not perfect no one's perfect oh i say that's what the bible calls a sinner and every sinner needs a savior and jesus is that savior j-e-s-u-s just exactly suiting our sinners And we might excuse it all. You know how we do that. Others lie, we're clever. Others cheat, we're shrewd. Others are bad-tempered. We're righteously indignant. Judging others, they're selfish, we're practical. But the bottom line is it separates us from a holy God now and eternally. What do we need? Justification by faith. And justifying something, facts don't change, but the relationship And the feeling about those facts does change. A parent might say to their boy, we want you home from school at four, not a minute later. No playing football in the park on the way back. You get home at four, right? He turns up at five. And the parents say, what have you been doing? Where have you been? And he says, the fire alarm went off. And we were all herded into a corner of the playground until they could check everything out. Now, what has happened? The facts have remained the same. He has not arrived back when he should have arrived back. But the feelings about it all are different now, correct? He's justified in that situation. And through Jesus Christ, our record remains the same. But we're justified through faith. We don't now look forward to a day of condemnation. We look back to ours 2,000 years ago when Jesus died as a substitute for us. And our faith identifies us with him. That's God's view about us. But the gospel will have people smiling at it and people frowning at it. It happened back then. It happens now. Indeed, the gospel is a little bit like the sun. It will melt the butter but harden the clay. And that happened back then, and Paul understood that that would happen, as we need to understand it will. People who will accept and people who will reject. He quotes Isaiah here that this is what was going to happen, which is why the gospel will go out more to the Gentile world, which is what is happening. Paul and Barnabas were expelled from the synagogue. They shook the dust from their feet. As if to say, okay, you don't want to know. We'll move on to the people who do want to know. You don't want to believe, not because you can't believe, but because you don't want to to believe will go to those that do and the disciples who remained were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit joy is the outcome of that relationship with God the peace that we can have with him which the world didn't give to us, and the world can't take away from us. And the outcome from that is a joy because of that gospel taking root in our lives. Nothing, nothing is worth losing to know that gospel for ourselves, to know the reality of it and the joy and peace that there is in believing, in being reconciled, in relating to God for real. And I just look around now and I pray that there will be that response among us all to say, yes, and this is for me. And I want this gospel to remain real in and through me. And I want to be a communicator of that as God gives me opportunity into the future. I do not expect to see you at the church I will be preaching at next week. You don't actually need to come. There's enough going on here. But I would pray that there might be a follow-up to all of this in our hearts and in our lives. Don't miss the joy. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for the gospel, for the good news. I pray that there might be a follow through in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. derek our final song is one that actually derek asked uh, specifically for it's a traditional hymn also traditionally worded you might say um it's actually a song that picks up on where derek was talking about just now somebody who experienced a deep peace and a deep joy um through through trials um and also not that knowledge of sins forgiven it's the song it is well with my soul Let's stand and let's sing this song to finish with.
1: Soul. With my soul